Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I'm Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, another week has gone by. We're both still in quarantine, <laughs> and we did get a fourth volume in the series from his home to yours, Bruce on E Street Radio. I assume you got a chance to listen to it. Of course, twice. Had to listen to it. Had to listen to it a second time. And what'd you think? I I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. I thought his tribute to Little Richard was was tremendous, and Glenn Campbell's times like these. I never thought Glenn Campbell would cover a Foo Fighter song, but he did, and he really made it sound like one of his own. Yeah, you know, that's my favorite Foo Fighters song by far, and I didn't know he had covered it. In fact, I, when I was listening and Bruce said, this is Glenn Campbell with times like these, I was like, oh, he has a song with that title too? And I, I, was, like, Wait a <laughs> I was like, Wait a second. So, But it was really good. It was. It took me a couple of listens to realize, hey, I've, I've heard this song before, and to finally Google it. But first time I heard it, I was like, this, this is a Glenn Campbell song to me. So well, I to really me, it reminded that. me a lot of like the Johnny Cash sessions where he did like Nine Inch Nails and and stuff like that. I see what you're saying. And I, I really enjoyed the uh, the train trilogy uh, later in the show where he did Big Bill Brunzi doing this train, which segued into Rank and File, which uh, a band he played last week or last time. The conductor wore black. And then you see the the influences of both of those songs on on Bruce's Land of Hope and Dreams, which which he played next. Yeah, it was nice that he did that. And uh, he also highlighted the new Dion song, which he and Patty are on. I actually think that's a really good song. It was. It was. It's a very peaceful, very beautiful song, which, is, of course, is what we need these days. And he got a little political again. We talked about that in volume three here. He really, I think, went a step further and he was pretty blunt. Yes, he was. And I, I like to hear that because obviously I, I have confirmation bias here. here so uh, it was good to hear him say that. But um, my biggest takeaway actually was the end of the show where he didn't sound as the upbeat as the ending of, of the previous shows. I mean, he ended with that. I don't know. Was it is it opera? Is it some kind of classical piece? I don't know how you would describe it. Mozart's Ave Verum Corpus Corpus. K618. Okay, I'm glad you said that, and I didn't have to say it. But <laughs> but, but then when he went into the, the Knocking on Heaven's Door by Antony and the Johnsons, which I had never heard before, it had more kind of a world-weary feel to it. I mean, that song always has that feel to it, but the way it segued out of, the, uh, out of Mozart's piece really rammed it home. Yeah, I totally agree. It did. And we're also skipping over, I think, perhaps the most notable comment he made for Bruce fans, which was <laughs> that Bruce he's fans, got yeah. things that he wants to do oh. that involve me and you, meaning you, us, the fans. Oh, OK. Yes. I, I thought you were talking about the naked selfies part. That made quite an impression on on certain members of the fan base as well. But but yeah. yes, plans for when he courting him, me and you. Yeah, that gives us hope that. We're going to be seeing him whenever this is over and whatever, hopefully whatever conditions must be met for this to be overcome as soon as possible. Yeah, unfortunately, it's probably going to be a while, especially involving artists that are in their 70s. But as we know, they were working on an E Street Band record. And I think the plan is eventually to put that record out and tour behind it. And fingers crossed that that's going to be sometime in the remotely near future. It's two years. Is that... <laughs> what we're talking here or do you think less 
I have no idea. I mean, I did have someone tell me today who speaks to someone at Live Nation that, you know, they're pretty sure there's not going to be concerts with audiences at least until I think the time frame they said was 12 months. And that and that does line up with if you're looking at the rescheduled dates that a lot of bands are coming out with. They seem to be in June and July of 2021. So it doesn't look like there'll be much before that, barring a miracle. And for Bruce, they're going to have to plan. They're going to have to have available arenas. We know what it takes to book a tour. So I don't know when they're going to start that. Hopefully 2021 will be possible. If not, maybe early 2022. You know, we're I think we're just really acting on hope here and grasping at straws. So it's, it's yeah. just a total guess. I mean, unfortunately, right now, we all really have to take it one day at a time. Yeah. To quote Winston Churchill, when you find yourself in hell, just keep going. And that's that's what we're doing. And, and in the meantime, we're, we're finding these fun topics to discuss. And maybe we'll have a little <laughs> gift come Christmas that'll really be a big topic for us to discuss. Oh, yeah. Fingers are always crossed. But they've been crossed for several years on that one. So, And, of course, um, I'm referring to tracks, too, which will <laughs> factor into tonight's episode. So, A little bit, a little bit, a little bit there. Should so, I set the table? Yeah, go ahead and, and introduce our topic for tonight. So tonight we're going to be looking at the period after the conclusion of the 92-93 tour leading up to the release of Jode. And basically during this period, which consists really of late 93 to the middle of 95, Bruce was incredibly active and in a very fascinating way because he recorded a record with the 92-93 band, which we always refer to as a relationship record. He recorded in the studio with the E Street Band for Greatest Hits, and then he recorded with a small combo for what eventually became Jode. And then even beyond that, he was recording with Grishecki, and American Babylon was released in late 95 as well. So it was an incredibly busy period for Bruce, and he also spent much of that time going back and forth between New York and L.A. and playing a bunch of guest appearances. So we've got a lot to talk about. Right. He was... Pretty busy, and we we seem to like these these gap years in, in Bruce history. We we really had a great time talking about the time period between the end the Amnesty tour and the and the release of the Human Touch Lucky Town albums. And I think this one will be uh, will be just as interesting. Well, one of the things that I think makes these periods interesting is it's easy to talk about the tours here, there, and, and especially that first period you refer to, which is such a famous period because he really disappeared, as we said at the time. Here, it's a little bit different because I don't think he disappeared. In fact, at I, all. I, I know he didn't disappear because I saw him in 1994 when he otherwise wasn't on tour more than I would have ever expected. But there was so much going on, and it seems like he was searching artistically for where he wanted to go next coming out of that 92-93 tour. Oh, exactly. When I originally suggested this topic, I was just going to focus on 1995, and that because that was a year he was really just all over the place, from the recording with the E Street Band to touring with with Grushecki, and then finally releasing the Jode album. By expanding it, we get we get more to talk about, and we actually and there's some very interesting things to talk about. So why don't we start? right after the conclusion of the 92-93 tour. Now, there's only one additional live appearance that year, and it takes place at the Tradewinds on June 28th, 1993, a show actually I was at. Clarence was playing. This was after Clarence and Bruce had reunited at the Hunger Benefit, and Bruce repaid the favor by doing a half-an-hour set with Clarence that night, which, interestingly enough, totally coincidentally, video of that just leaked this week, and it's really high quality. Yes, it's really interesting to see Bruce in, in that kind of in that kind of setting, you know, 20 some odd years later from video we had never seen before. And so, um, yeah, very fascinating to see. 
it totally blew my mind because that's not a night really that we've talked about a lot over the years, but it was a very important night. And Bruce's performance that night was, was dead on. And it was, it was a very exciting evening and that place was packed. I mean, the trade wins, <laughs> I remember we got there very early, but by the time Bruce took the stage, which must've been about 10 o'clock, the crowd was so far back in that place. You know how the doors open and it go, went out into the, the patio area and all uh, that. It was yeah. crazy. I remember that. <laughs> I wasn't at that show, but yes, I remember how the trade wins was. So, so yeah, it sounded like Bruce was repaying Clarence with a favor from uh, four days earlier when when they when Clarence came and they did Born to Run and Tenth Avenue. So, it was a cool way to kind of kind of end that chapter, and it was the last chapter on on stage anyway for about what six months. Yeah, there were no other public appearances for the rest of the year, and from what we know, he did record Streets of Philadelphia. The date on that is not. I don't think that that's known exactly when he was in the studio on that. And he also started working on songs with Grishecki, apparently, that wound up on American Babylon. It looks like uh, uh, Streets of Philadelphia was wrapped in sometime in October. And then the next month was when he started the, the sessions with Grishecki. Now, at that point, also, had he started work on what we're going to refer to in this show as the relationship record? I don't believe so, at least not explicitly. I'm sure... Well, I guess we, the question is, we don't know how much if he worked on any of the songs at the same time that he was working on Streets of Philadelphia. I mean, that's kind of the question, because if he was, we don't know what they were. And if he wasn't, it would make sense because that was a song that he really needed to focus on at the time. Of course, Streets of Philadelphia arrived in December 1993 as part of Jonathan Demme's film, Philadelphia. As we all know, Streets of Philadelphia went on to become a massive hit, won him an Oscar won him Grammys, and I, I think stands to this day, per, perhaps with along with The Rising, but it was a bigger hit than The Rising, as a defining track of Bruce's latter-day career. I totally agree. It was it was a much bigger hit than Better Days or Human Touch was. Oh, yeah. Uh, at least in terms of the charts. He was kind of all over the place, let's be honest here. Not only did he perform it at the, at the Oscars, but he did it at like an AIDS benefit, yeah, and I was so, at that at, at the APLA AIDS benefit. Did he do it at the Golden Globes? No, the Golden Globes does not have live musical performances. And then he was at the Grammys that, that March doing a tribute to Curtis Mayfield. And he was just, you know, he, he didn't disappear this time. Well, one of the other interesting things about Streets of Philadelphia and as the performances progressed, the one at Universal City had Roy and Tommy Sims and Bobby King backing him. Other performances early on that year also included Zach Alford on drums. At a certain point, as the E Street Band started to come back into the picture, he then, I believe it was the Grammy performance he did with Max and Roy and Gary, right? Let me check. It was Roy, Max, Tommy Sims, Shane, and Bobby. Ah, okay. So, so there it was, was a, sort of a mix of the yeah, two. Yeah, it, it was a hybrid. It's actually really interesting. That's very much a hybrid there. Let's talk about the song for a second, because he really captured something in Streets of Philadelphia. Now, we know, unfortunately, that Kristen Ann Carr had died reading the lyrics, and it seems very likely. And I, I think he's even stated that, that he drew on that experience in the context of the song, even though she died of cancer and the song is, of course, in the movie about AIDS, but it's really one and the same. And he humanized the, the process of dying. And it really is a tremendously powerful song. 
It is. Bruce, when Bruce talks about those kind of personal issues, personal situations, that's when he really is, that's when he's at, at his best songwriting-wise, to be honest. Sometimes when he's writing more about the outside world, it doesn't quite hit as close, but when he's writing from from that person's perspective, he uh, he hits a home run. The line that always gets me in the song, I saw my reflection in a window, I didn't know my own face, oh brother, are you going to leave me wasting away? The intensity and the emotion there, at the way he puts you in the head of someone who knows they are living their last days, it really just blows me away. Right, and certainly but from the viewpoint of the character in the film, from Tom Hanks's character, about being an outsider. And that, that is something Bruce does know about. So he was able to also kind of inhabit that skin as well. It's known that Jonathan Demme, who directed Philadelphia, I, when he first approached Bruce, he thought Bruce was going to deliver a rocker. And obviously that's not what Bruce delivered. But as we know, Demme fell in love with it and I just, as I was just saying, it, it just captured something. It's so perfect in the movie and the way they use the song a little bit later, almost like it's score when Tom Hanks's character has really suffered some defeats. It's just, it really, it really works well. Well, I think the, the scene you're talking about is actually in the, in the music video for the song. Oh, so yes. I believe they did pull it from the movie and put it into the video. Even though you're not seeing that scene as part of the whole film, the combination of Bruce's lyrics and Tom Hanks's is acting. I mean, you get what you get, you see exactly what's going on. Yeah, pretty good performance there as well from Tom. <laughs> Only who also, of, who also won an Oscar. And then again the next year for uh, for Forrest Gump. So yes, he was on a roll there. That's for sure. Now we're not quite sure when they took place, but sometime around February there were more sessions for American Babylon. I want to go back a little bit to the fall of or to November of 93 to the Grusecki sessions I mentioned earlier, they, um, what I found interesting, and I did not even realize this until the other night when I was reading up on this stuff, is that the band for, for some of those songs on, on Grusecki's album included Zach Alford and then some other guys I had never heard of, Jerome Smith and Leon Pendervis, Pendarvis, who uh, they were on the album. I thought the album was all house rockers, so it was surprising to me to see these other names, but... Um, it's also interesting to note that those guys also reported to have played with, with Bruce in, in his on his own sessions early in the next year. Obviously, whatever the fans may have thought of the 92-93 tour, and of course you and I thought highly of it, Bruce seemed to really fall in love with Shane Fontaine, Zach Alford, Tommy Sims. They remained factors in this period that we're talking about now for quite a while. Yeah, they were around for, I mean, they recorded... Let's be honest. Let's go ahead and say it. They recorded an album's worth of material over the course of of ninety of 1994. That just hasn't we just haven't seen yet. We haven't heard yet. And as we always like to say, we're hoping to hear it soon. <laughs> always hoping to hear it soon. But at the time, it's it's a mystery because Bruce actually he dedicates half a half a page to it in his in his biography. And it's and it's one of the little promo things on on E Street Radio where where Bruce actually says, I had this batch of songs and I, I finished them and I mixed them, and but I never put it out. And every so often I go back to them. So it's interesting that between those two things, I mean, between the between the book mention and, and the E Street Radio thing, I don't think those songs are, are going to die in the vault. 
No, and he has brought that project up so many times now over the years. It obviously occupies a space for him because I'm sure there's other, in fact, we know there's other stuff that he must have recorded that has never been mentioned publicly. And he just seems to have a fascination with that record. I think part of it must be there was something there, but he when when everything got put together, something wasn't there. And I think that was the reason that they didn't put it out. I would assume that the problems they had had with some of the reception to Human Touch in particular in Lucky Town, and then he had proceeded with the tour. We know what Hilburn's commentary was on the tour, at least early on, that he didn't get far enough away from E Street. Maybe once the album was recorded, he just felt, and hopefully we're going to hear it and hear the sound of it at some point, but maybe he just felt that it was not enough of a departure and that's really what put him on the road to that eventually winds up with Jode, which is a, a major departure. Well, I, actually, I was kind of going the other way, whereas he was might have been too much of a departure. You think? That, well, I mean, it's just speculation here. <laughs> well, we just, know some of the songs on the record. Yes, we do. Uh, Secret Garden, obviously, Back in Your Arms, Waiting on the End of the World. So we know what kind of overall sound it probably would have had. See, I, that's why I don't think it would have been, maybe it wasn't enough of a departure. I might be biased because, of course, we've heard E Street versions of those songs. I, I don't, it, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, we've we talked about this in the archive show. To me, one of the most fascinating things about it is that, assuming he puts that album out intact and we hear the versions with the 92, 93 band of songs we've already gotten from the E Street band, I, I just think that's going to be amazing insight into his artistic process and of course the business side also comes into it because they had to release a song on his bruce springsteen album that had streets of philadelphia on it and that's we're going to get to that in a moment that's eventually how we get the greatest hits right so i i didn't think we wanted to skip over the rest of 94 no we don't just like that <laughs> no because there's a lot going on in 94 he obviously performs at the oscars that's a, a huge night for him and then he starts doing a series of performances in, in Los Angeles. There's a couple of performances at the House of Blues, long live the House of Blues, which is now sadly gone. But it opened on April 29th, 1994 and April 30th, 1994 with private events. And he was there both nights. And he was hanging out with people like Magic Johnson and Dan Aykroyd and Woody Harrells. <laughs> oh, the House of Blues. And that becomes a couple of months later, the, ha the House of Blues had a house band, the Sacred Hearts who played on Monday nights and Danny was in that band and Jimmy Woods, who had played in the tunnel of love sessions that have never been released was well, in that he, band. His harmonica is on a uh, spare, spare parts. parts. No? You're right. Okay. Yeah. All right, go on. And, and, no, and then I forget who else was in the band and they played every Monday night with a jam session. I went every Monday night when the house of blues opened both, in part because we kept hearing that Bruce might show up, but it was also just an amazing, amazing time. Uh, we saw in a span of a few weeks at the jam session, we saw Melissa Etheridge, we saw Prince, and mm -hmm. then on June 27th, finally, it was one of the MTV awards was going on that week, and Bruce was, uh, it must have been the MTV Movie Awards and we had a friend who's actually a very close, was a cl very close friend of your wife who was in town for his job. And he called me up and he said, are you going to the jam tonight? I said, I go every week. He said, well, good, because tonight's tonight it's going to happen. And on June 27th, <laughs> 1994, it did happen. 
Bruce really tore up the place that night. The Sacred Hearts was a top-notch band, as you can imagine, with all these high-end artists coming in to jam with them. And they did a set. I only wish that there was some document of that night. There's never been a tape. There's never been any video. It basically now just exists in my mind. (laughs) And they did a couple of songs that Bruce really hasn't done anywhere else. Ride Your Pony, Texas Blues Rocker. It was it was Tobacco Road that night, which he has done elsewhere. It was I remember being just phenomenal. And that was a great appearance. All right. So since we don't have any audio or video of it, I'm going to ask a few questions here. Yeah, go ahead. So I assume to the he best was on... that I can remember. Yeah. Well, come on. Twenty six years ago. That should be nothing for you. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, first off, I assume he was playing guitar and, and doing lead vocals on all these songs. Yes. And he I remember I don't remember on which songs. I think it was Tobacco Road. He he did a very fiery solo. Okay. And with Danny on stage, what kind of interactions did they have? He definitely acknowledged Danny as best as I can remember. And I, I do remember some warmth being exhibited there. It doesn't really stand out to me beyond that. Was it both ways or was it just Bruce to Danny or Danny? I, I, I think Danny was happy that Bruce was there. That was a band. They were very excited to get that level of uh, a caliber of artist and and they were getting it as i said on a weekly basis and th- and those guys were having a blast Th- those you know and that doesn't really exist as much in la anymore and of course the house of blues doesn't exist at all and even when it did exist the house of blues had transitioned sort of from like this it was really in the first months that it was open sort of like a hangout for all these great artists and they were just coming in and jamming it later became more of a tourist place but in in 1994 it was it was remarkable to be there not only for bruce but the other artists that we saw there and it was it was really a blast yeah it looks like um looks like it does sound like a lot of fun and he certainly was playing playing quite a bit there in california at the time yeah i mean you mentioned the house of blue performances and then he also had he played that legendary show with the rock bottom remainders. Yeah, uh, the one with all the with, with all the big time authors, uh, Dave Barry, Amy Tan, Stephen King, Dave Marsh. You know the usual. <laughs> and of course, there's the John Wesley Harding guest appearance where he did wreck on the highway. And uh, for people who have not seen it this week, uh, John Wesley Harding, under the name his real name Wesley Stace, has released a bunch of stuff documenting that night this week in the quarantine. Okay, well, wasn't some of this stuff already released? Didn't we already have a copy of that song? I think so. Well, we from, definitely had a copy of it. He, in official fact, officially release. released it. Yeah, but yeah. he I know there was a video, and then he released some apparently some Super 8 footage he had just gotten his hands on. Oh, wow, nice. Yeah. All right, very cool. And then, but see, and this is where things get interesting with Bruce, is that he flies back to the East Coast, and he plays there. A few weeks later, he's at the Pony for the 20th anniversary show. With Southside and... John Bon Jovi and Mac shows up. So I look like a hell of a show. I, I, unfortunately, I wasn't there, and I guess you weren't either. No, I was not there, but I did get steady reports throughout the evening from your wife. Oh, uh, okay. I, uh, of course she was there. She was at everything, <laughs> even if I wasn't. Anyway, and then, um, of course, we want to talk about the big, the big bar show of 94. Was it Mars in Long Branch? Yeah, and speaking of your wife, who I owe a great debt to on this one, so I'm sitting in my apartment in Los Angeles. It's the first year I'm living out here. And I get a call from your lovely wife, Claudine, who tells me that uh, there's something going to be going down that she heard from a friend of hers. And she thinks that I really should be there. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sitting in Los Angeles. She's telling me about a show in Long Branch, New Jersey. So I'm like, what? 
agonizing over it. She's like, you really should think about it. And this was, and I was young at the time. And certainly I was not flying back and forth across the country. And it happened to be the week of my birthday. So under that, uh, with that in mind, I said, okay, I'm going to take a chance. Claudina seems really certain here (laughs) that her information is accurate and I'm going to fly to New York. So we went to New York and uh, as we know, it paid off and that was really in, in the annals of special evenings I've spent with Bruce. That that was that one is right up there. Uh, of course, I somehow wound up getting involved in the show because he needed some assistance, and he needed, uh, he needed a human teleprompter. Yeah, and uh, it really I, the entire evening that that was the first time that he had played his own material in that sort of setting in a very long time because you normally and and we'd all seen jersey bar shows and whatever glory days would pop up maybe jersey girl but it wasn't like he was showing up in bars unless he was with the east street band and that was all the way back in 84 85 he wasn't playing his own material and here was a full 90 minute set obviously a mix of stuff from grushaki but also Lucky Town and Darkness and Atlantic City and Living Proof. It, it was it was a remarkable evening to be a part of. And I, I just can't say enough about what a memorable that evening was for me. And and it's obviously out there for people, you know, that they can listen to. And it was it was a great performance. And it was the type of thing that you dream of seeing. And thanks to your wife, I did see it. Okay. And certainly that was as you said, that was the first time he'd really done his own material or her, or his own, I mean, like deeper material. I'm not just talking about glory days, as you said, or from small things, but going back to Lucky Town and, and Living Proof. And that was kind of the start of the relationship, of the close relationship that, he, that Grusecki and Bruce would have, especially on the Jersey Shore. Yes, as we know, they had been working on this record that would wasn't released yet at that moment and uh, that we would later know was American Babylon. It really seemed to come out of nowhere because obviously Joe Grushecki was not a major artist. Bruce just sort of adopted him under his wing at that point, and they were trying to get him on a higher level in terms of his audience and his reach and so forth. And Bruce really took an interest in it and... He put himself into the record, and and we know what that yielded. And then he really did dedicate, as we know, constantly showing up with him and playing these amazing shows that got tremendous publicity for Grushecki and the House Rockers. And, well, what's interesting is that Bruce and Grushecki go back to at least 82. I think that's something that a lot of people seem to overlook, that they that when Grushecki played Clarence's Place, I guess sometime in the summer of 82, Bruce, Bruce showed up and— uh, and played a few songs, and then when on the on the Pittsburgh stop of the Tunnel of Love tour, Grushecki hopped on stage for that one as well. So it's only, I guess, in retrospect, it should not have been a big of a surprise that Bruce would work with him so closely. But then again, going from playing with him on doing a couple so- songs on stage to producing his album, I guess that's a, that's a pretty that's the big. Oh one. yeah, think of all the artists Bruce had interacted with during the years you're talking about, even someone like Bobby, it's not like he ever did a complete album with Bobby. What would that have meant to Bobby if that had happened? That's certainly true. And we should also mention that I guess leading up to that Mars performance, uh, the house rockers and Bruce, they were recording at Bruce's house. And this time it was the, the actual house rockers. It wasn't Zach Alford and Jerome Smith, but it was the, the original house rockers from Pittsburgh. 
Right. And they and that was probably their like their warm up to playing Mars. And so it really worked out well for for everybody involved. It became a really unique relationship. And we're going to get to it later in the episode when it continues the following year. And they Bruce actually goes on tour with them. And that's following another another similar extended set at another at another bar trade winds uh, in July of 95. And uh, Bruce, just the entire year. So we know he's working on the relationship record with the 92-93 band. He's in New York doing shows. He's 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 down on the Jersey Shore. He's in L.A. He does. I, I see him again at the House of Blues with John Fogarty on September 20th, 1994. And then a month later, he's back in New York and he's playing with Dylan at Roseland. <laughs> and, and he was by Coastal. And that was after he won the MTV uh, Video Music Award for best video from a film yeah he just he seemed to be really intent on playing that year it was so much fun uh you know the 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 appearances that i saw and that fogarty one that was a very special night too for me because that was actually one of the first times that fogarty played a full set of material where he was doing credence and bruce was sitting upstairs the entire night watching the show he was digging it as much as we all were (laughs) and then he came down in the encores and, and they played in the midnight hour together and he just seemed to really want to be out there, really be really be playing, and he was doing it constantly. Well, you mentioned the Bob Dylan appearance. Uh, that was October twentieth, and somewhere near at the Roseland Ballroom in New York. And then the next night, he's playing at down at the Playpen in, in Sayreville, New Jersey, with uh, with with John Eddy, Greg Ken, Marshall Crenshaw, and Elliot Murphy. So he was, I mean, he was all over the place. Yeah, as, on back-to-back as, nights. As we're talking about it now, it strikes me because I do think creatively he must have been going through some struggles in the sense that we know he was doing this relationship record. At some point late in the year, they obviously, is the, when they concluded it wasn't the right thing to put out because we know that's what leads to the greatest hit sessions, and that's coming up very shortly. Okay. I don't know. Was he out there playing all these shows? A lot of these artists are people like Fogarty and Dylan. You understand he's going to go see them. They're going to ask for him to get up and play. But was he out there in part because he felt the these live performances were giving him artistic inspiration? Or he was so f- frustrated with what he was trying to do in the studio and not getting it right that it was just an outlet for him just to go out and just play and not have any to worry about getting something exactly right. Did he feel though that what was in the st- what was happening in the studio was frustrating? We don't know that. It seems like he believes in this record. Obviously at some point and, and I'm going to guess until we hear it and can get a sense of exactly what was going on musically, I do think that the economics probably played a part. Now perhaps cutting against that is that the album he ultimately winds up releasing is not with the E Street Band or at least the studio record it turns out to be Joad, which is nobody's idea of an economic home run, I'm sure. Well, maybe he at that point he was kind of lost and didn't really he wasn't didn't know exactly how much he believed in the material. We we don't know. We're just speculating here. But I got but we're going to get to this, but I got the, I just got the feeling that he believed so strongly in Joad that he didn't care exactly how it was received that he just wanted to to get it out there and he wanted to play in those theaters. Reception be damned. Yeah. As 94 continues, Bruce Bass reports that sometime in October they recorded additional songs for the Grishecki record. He was working with Toby Scott, who was recording and mixing. Coming Down Maria was one of the songs that was recorded at that time. Then he does a really interesting appearance with Jackson Brown at the Love Ride, which is an event that's held outside Los Angeles with bikers. 
And then he's back at the trade winds in December playing Christmas tunes. So again, he continues to be all over the place and just seemingly having the time of his life. I would really would love to hear a recording of that Jackson Brown guest appearance because it looks pretty damn cool. Yeah. With uh, I, Running on Empty, Born to Run, Born to be Wild. I was bummed that I missed that. Uh, you know, I was not out there with the bikers. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't see you hanging out with the bikers, but uh, it would have been fun to see. And, you know, too bad one of those bikers didn't have a, a recording deck on them. We move on to 95, and this is when the big thing happens. Go ahead. Yeah, it's pretty big. And as depicted in the movie Blood Brothers, which was eventually released documenting what took place, they knew it was going to be big. And they tried to clamp down on any sort of explosion of expectation of what was going to happen. But on January 15th, 1995, and I remember this well because it was the day of the NFL championship games. NFL or both NFL games? Yeah, yeah, both the, the AFC game and the NFC game leading to the Super Bowl. And when the NFC game was being played, it was Dallas against San Francisco. San Francisco won that game. I was dying for that game to start. It was a huge game. And I remember just totally distracted because suddenly that day it broke that Bruce was in the studio with the E Street Band and they were recording again. (laughs) Yeah, that would have distracted me if uh, if one of my own teams wasn't playing. Uh, But just to set up the Greatest Hits album, Once they decided not to put out that relationship album, they still needed to put something out with Streets of Philly on it just because they were hoping and expecting that Grammy bump. Yeah, the Grammys are coming up. Bruce is expected to be a major factor, which he ultimately is. And and at the time, especially that this was a time when record sales were obviously considerably (laughs) higher than they are now. And they needed a product out for the post Grammy period where he was expected to get a huge bump. And they needed Streets of Philadelphia on it. And they apparently did not want to release the 94 relationship record. Right. And so they came up with greatest hits. And fortunately, they decided to add some new stuff on there in addition to the to the all the the classics that we'd already heard. Oh, yes. And obviously, Streets of Philadelphia was the main impetus for that record around the Grammys. But I'm sure that they felt that by putting on some unreleased bonus material, that was going to juice their sales even more. And it did. I I mean, I certainly would not have been excited about it without those four new songs. So, you know, I think they made the right choice. Oh, definitely. And and they were big songs. And, and we had been waiting for Murder, Inc. to be released for, I think, a very long time. Uh, it was widely known about in the fan base. And it was great to have the official release. And, and Secret Garden, which ultimately would also go on to be a considerable hit on a delayed basis because of Jerry Maguire, it definitely gave the fans a nice bonus. Yes, it did. And of course, we always wanted to take that release. At the time, we wanted to take that that reunion and then make it bigger. And they and they kind of fueled it. They did um, at Tramps in New York City. They filmed a live video for Murder Incorporated with the whole the whole band got together and they ran through not just Murder Incorporated what six times here, but a bunch of other classics. You know, yes. Cadillac Ranch, Badlands, Ramrod, Thunder Road. So it looked like things were kind of heading in that direction, but it, uh, it really did. And then, he, it, I mean, but as like- I said, remember in Blood Brothers, which is when they're coming up with the press release to announce that this is happening, they're very, very clear to be stating that there are no current plans for a tour. Right. Just to slow it down. Yeah. I think that thing that that's what was not what Landau said. Yeah. 
Bruce and E Street Band getting back together was big news, and it was covered in that manner. It did seem like the the rumors were were pointing toward a, an actual tour, not just this one off, but toward actual dates across the country. Yeah, and there there were rumors all over the place, at least of shows in New York and L.A. I will say that one of our mutual friends who was friendly at the time with Barry Bell, he denied that vehemently, that there was ever plans for any kind of E Street tour in 1995. Okay. All right. Well, it's certainly, maybe a lot of times some of these Bruce rumors are based more on, on wishing than actual facts, at least among the fan base anyway. So there was certainly a lot of smoking and I guess there wasn't, there wasn't any fire to go along with it, but still that was the hope. Yeah, and and they and they did make a number of appearances, as you said. They played at Tramps, they played on Letterman, which was a major appearance, which got a huge amount of publicity. Then that night, they also went over and played a full set at the Sony Music Studios, which was captured and released in part. Right. That some of that was released on the Blood Brothers documentary, as you said, and of course we had the entire video from you know the magic of bootlegging. It's actually, it's I mean, it's a pretty cool video to watch. Maybe. Or at least it was back in 1995 or 1996. But of course, now going back, all those performances just just pale in comparison to what I, we've I, seen. So what, what we've seen in the last 20 years. It's like I always say about context. It, it, to go back to 1995, it was especially for the fan base. I remember just thinking myself, I, even though the performances, they, they weren't fully on. They hadn't gelled fully back together. And, and of course, that wouldn't happen for a number of years when they reunited permanently but it was just so amazing to see these men playing music together again it it just i i can't even put into words what that meant to people and that's why the rumor started of course right yeah it was a big freaking deal what did you think of the extra tracks Loved them. Absolutely loved them. What what can I say? Murder Incorporated? Well, as I said, we were all thrilled that Murder Inc. was released. And of course, that was the original recording. This Hard Land is a different recording than had been bootlegged. It was re-recorded in 1995 with the band. What did, you think, what did you think of that one? What can I say? I liked it. I, I mean, I do prefer the 82 version a little bit more. But at the time, when we didn't, when tracks hadn't been released... I definitely preferred this this cleaner studio track. I always preferred the 82 version, but I was damn glad to have it. And though, I mean, there were some other songs recorded during during those sessions, but uh, uh, the best stuff was definitely released. Yes, and we, we did discuss Blood Brothers a little bit because the last episode we were talking about The Garden Stand. Blood Brothers is a, a, a very interesting song because of the ambivalence he expresses. And... We talked about that a little in the last time because, of course, he eliminated that verse for the performance at the Garden. I wonder what the band felt sitting in that room in the studio recording that song and hearing those words. Oh, I that's one of the questions I need to submit to to, to Max Weinberg, or I guess anybody can submit it now. Uh, he, when he's doing he's doing these Instagram live shows with Backstreets, it's like, what was it like being in the studio, especially? if Bruce ever referenced the tour with Roy, like Roy, you know, remember when we did the song on tour, because that's something Bruce could have said at the time. Re- well, regarding forgetting this about land. that they had done it on tour. What about the fact that Roy had been involved in the sessions? They're recording secret garden with the East street band. And Roy had recorded that song with the 92, 93 band. Well, first off, are we hundred percent sure that Roy was in those sessions? 
Oh, I just assumed was was he not? I all the stuff I've been reading, you know, thanks to Bruce Base, doesn't include Roy in any of those sessions. Oh, now, that's, that's that could be wrong, but it's not it's not a given. Oh, okay, point taken. So, but still, but I get your point that I mean Roy was involved in the '92 albums and on the tour, and so what was what was it like for for Max and, and Gary and and Danny? I mean, well, Danny, we kind of know he in that- he was not pleased, and that's one of the things that makes the subtext to the performance from the House of Blues the year before, I think, interesting. Well, the incident that was documented in the Peter Ames Carlin book was at the from the Sony Studio show from from April 5th where they were walking to the stage and apparently Bruce didn't like the the shirt that Danny had on. And he requested that Danny change it. And Danny's response was no. And what are you going to do? Fire me again. So <laughs> there was definitely, definitely a lot of tension going on. And I mean, obviously that was in April and we're talking about January. So it's very possible that a lot of those, that kind of resentment was already, already kind of uh, formulating at that point. Yeah, that's why I say about the song, the band, (laughs) that would be a question, a good question to ask Max uh, what he thought. Now, I don't know if he could answer that one honestly, although he is very uh, open with his answers. The guy can talk. That's for sure. (laughs) He can definitely talk. And then Bruce parted ways with the band, at least we thought perhaps temporarily. And he, he did make one more appearance with them later in the year. But on April 12th, 1995, in his attempt to play with as many people in as many <laughs> different places as possible, now he's in Carnegie Hall. And that and that was a show that I was at. I happened, I think it was around Passover and I was in New York. And that was a really cool night, too. I, I, one of the things I remember about that night, I was in the car with your wife heading to the show and we knew it was an Elvis tribute. And I said something like, oh, Bruce played Burning Love. I would just love that. And and he did. And, and and your wife knew that it was going to happen and she didn't ruin it for me, which I oh, appreciated. Good. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. He played with, uh, as you said, a lot of different people. And I mean, at this show, James Taylor, Elton John, John Sting. Well, I mean, that wasn't exactly a rare thing anymore, considering the amnesty tour. But and then, yeah, then they did a bunch of Elvis covers, including with Jesse Norman. Right. That the, the, yes. the old solo Mio into yes. now or never. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's that's an exciting show. I mean, that version of Burning Love, it's a crappy audience tape, but the fun comes through anyway. Yeah, and and really for a time when he wasn't on tour, the the number of appearances he was making and the diversity of them, as I said, he he must have been just having a ball. And yeah, and we didn't even talk about his appearance with Soul Asylum a couple of months yeah, earlier. Talk about <laughs> random. <laughs> yeah, that now, was we, weird, and that was. You know, I guess they they were big at that point, or they had they were that at, was post Runaway Train. And Dave Perner, the the lead singer of Soul Asylum, was dating Winona Ryder at the time. We'll talk about the Joe tour separately at a later point. But they, I actually saw them in California at a number of Joe shows. I did, actually, I didn't realize that Perner was that was that big of a Bruce fan. I think he was. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, and Bruce Base also reports that in April of '95, which is the time period he's back in New York. At, in Rumson, in his home studio, they did the final sessions for the American Babylon record, and and I guess they put it to bed there. Yes, and but it wouldn't co- wouldn't come out till October. It sounded like there was a 
a bit of a uh, struggle to find a, a label willing to release it. Yeah, the plan there was that Bruce was going to help Grushecki and the House Rockers get on a, at least some kind of label, and I guess it, it took a little while to work that out. But the when the album came out, uh, and we'll talk about the album in more detail, but it's a really strong record. It, it really is. I really enjoyed it at the time, and certainly hearing Bruce's vocals on an album and hearing his guitar solos was certainly encouraging. Again, as you said, in context, when there was hadn't done he hadn't released anything, or at least he he just released greatest hits, but that was on a very limited basis. But to hear him basically on a whole album was was that was it was it was great at the time. And as the middle of the year continues, I just find this so humorous. Next, Bruce is in Austin recording with Joe Ely. Yeah, that which is very which is very interesting considering that I think for most of Bruce's guest appearances on other people's albums he's recorded them in Rumson or Thrill Hill and then just emailing them or or sending them to to the artist so that's that's a little that yeah that's kind of an eyebrow raiser right uh, there and then he's at uh, Don Henley's wedding and Fogarty's fiftieth birthday party all I, right well let's well let's talk about the Fogarty birthday party for a yeah, second yeah thanks to John Stamos. <laughs> John Stamos, the only man who can pull off a mullet, in my opinion. But uh, but yeah, that was, talk about another recently surfaced video. Stamos posted it on Instagram, what, about a month ago or so? Yeah, it, and it was really quite shocking that he did that. Which, which part? The, that Stamos did it? Yeah, that the, that he was what? that he had this video from 25 years ago that nobody knew any existence of, and he's posting it on Instagram. Well, what what are they going to do? Fire him? Yeah, I guess they got the you know. <laughs> There's no leverage there anymore. Let's well, be honest and the here. and and the really unique thing about it is. And you were the one who told me this. I didn't realize it. Apparently, there's a Springsteen original in there that Bruce has never done anywhere else, and we have no other date on. No, uh, the song is I'm Your Detail Man. And when I first watched it, I'm thinking this is some, you know, little obscure blues rockabilly number that from like the 50s or something that Bruce, you know, it seems to be famous for pull, for pulling out. But no, I was I was told by a very reliable source that this is indeed a Bruce original. But we don't. And, and then if you go back and watch it again, he's calling out key changes. So. Uh, it, it may be pretty. It may sound like a generic or, or standard blues and R and B song from from the fifties, but it's a Springsteen original. It, the whole thing is just really strange, and it, it <laughs> sort of serves to confirm what I've been talking about. Like he's the man is like going around and having all this fun and doing all these performances. He's in John Fogerty's freaking living room, <laughs> and there's a song that an original that he plays that we have no other word about. It really is. It's something. Yeah. 95 was a very unusual year. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and then at somewhere around this time, they start recording the Jode sessions. Or and what again, it's a, Jode sessions. and it's a totally different approach. Now you're talking about going from recording with the E street band to recording, as you said, with a small combo. Yeah, and and the combo, and and this is in Brian Hyatt's book. They were recording Marty Rifkin on steel guitar, Gary was on bass, Susie was on fiddle, and Gary Malabar was on drums, who had played on Lucky Town. Uh, according to Hyatt, he wanted Max, but Max was unavailable because of the TV show. Hmm. And what's unbelievable about this is Hyatt describes during the day 
when it's uh, light out, they're recording Western swing country songs. We only know the title of one of them, which is Tiger Rose. And apparently there's an album from that session that's pretty much totally done, according to Hyatt. And then at night, they turn the lights down. It gets dark outside. Bruce lights candles. (laughs) And they record an entirely different record, which is Jode. So, I mean, this is just bonkers. I mean, let's think about this in perspective. He's got the the relationship record he's he's already recorded. They did the recording for Greatest Hits. He's recording American Babylon. And now with this little combo, he's recording two separate records, one during the day and one at night. He was prolific. And I don't think this this period of time really gives him its – I don't think people have given that time of his career it, its due. I mean, sure, it wasn't 77 to 83 or 77 to 84, but in this case, he was just so diverse and recreating so many different pieces – that I think people just overlook it. And of course, there's just a fact that of those three albums we just talked about, two of them have never been released. You know when that material is going to get its due? Tracks two? Exactly. <laughs> Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. So, and then I, I, we get to July of 95. Now, at this point, I, all this various recording is going on. And then he somehow winds up in Berlin. And I mean, we need to talk about this because this is hands down, not only the strangest appearance he's ever made, it leads not only to the strangest release of Bruce's career, it's one of the strangest releases by any artist ever anywhere. <laughs> well, the, certainly the weirdest part about it was it was presumptuously, my, if I'm saying that right, to to promote greatest hits, right? It was yeah. Well, the point was that they were going to release "Hungry Heart" as a single from Greatest Hits. And I mean, first off, it was already a single, you know, fifteen years ago, fifteen years fifteen years prior, anyway. And then he doesn't even do it with the E Street Band. He does it with Wolfgang Niedicken and his whatever. I, I can't even try to to say German. Whatever. I think. It, I, yeah, I'm not going to bother. Let's just call it Wolfgang Niedicken and his band. Okay, let's go with that. Uh, it was just the fact that when they released the single as the it was a video too, that it was Bruce's voice, his live voice, his live voice from this show from the from Berlin, but with the E Street Band's music that they had recorded in 1979. It's so, utterly incomprehensible uh, to this day. I I cannot possibly explain it. It is. It was so bizarre. And then I remember reading on the Lucky Town Digest where somebody reported on it was somebody, somebody was able to, to get in and was able to see the show. And they wrote this whole thing into the digest and just to kind of preempt any, any of people accusing them of making it up. The moderator of the list, Kevin Kinder actually came on and said, I have checked with Bruce's PR people. This is a hundred percent true. And they, they were did hungry hearts seven times during this show. Along with a bunch of other cool covers. I yeah. might add. Yeah, the knocking on heaven's door. But this is, I can't, I still can barely wrap my mind around this because why was he in Berlin? Why is he recording for greatest hits with Wolfgang Niedekin? I mean, six months it's, later, it's it, it completely inexplicable. It just, it just, it puts a capper really on the, everything that we're talking about here about just how diverse and how much he was doing and in different places. This one really takes the cake. Yes, it does. This was just so out there without any kind of real explanation. Hey, maybe Bruce wanted a free trip, uh, a free European trip. And he, and he got Sony to pay for it by saying he's going to film a, a promo video, but 
and the resulting and the resulting edition of Hungry Heart was referred to as Hungry Heart '95. Correct? <laughs> I that you know I don't remember that. I I mean I've never really listened to it in the last twenty four years. I probably listened to it once in '96. Well, but that's the other it. thing is any song. I think if you take the studio version, and I if I recall properly, didn't they speed the studio version of Hungry Heart up a little bit? Well, that's the that's kind of like the legend from. Uh, I don't know from somebody that we learned that we learned at that time to make it sound more more poppy. Right. So if you take his voice, which he's playing live without, although they could have futz around with it, obviously in the in the post, but it just utterly crazy to take his live voice and plop it into the studio music from '79 and release that. It just it it really t- still boggles the mind. Still very just very weird. But uh, but two weeks later, he was back in Jersey doing uh, making another appearance, and this one is more uh, uh, conceivable, more ex- yeah. more. Uh, this is a big one. It's the next yeah, one with Grishaki leading up to the release of American Babylon. I actually was not at that, but I I know the place was was place jammed was beyond any comprehension, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, very hot. Were you there? I was not there, but I, I had some friends who were there, and they. They said how hot, packed, and just steamy it was, and a little bit, even getting a little bit dangerous in there with because it was so tight. Yeah, and the people who survived that crush, they did see a really good show. <laughs> it was a bit of an extension of the show that it, they had done at Mars the year before that I was at, but also here they did Murder Incorporated, which they didn't do the year before, and on that one, Steve and Max also showed up the guest. Right, and uh, and they stuck around. I think Steve and Max, they were also on Cadillac Ranch and Gloria and Ramrod. So uh, you got kind of like a mini E Street thing going on there. And, you know, if Bruce was trying to to squash any E Street reunion rumors, that probably wasn't the best thing to do. But Yeah, probably not. But they had, they had a lot of fun, and you can hear it in, in the recording. And, yeah, one of the ones I wish I was there for. Oh, but yeah, anyway. by all accounts, that was a very, very big night. It really was. It was from my, from what I understand, and I wasn't really connected at the time. Uh, it was one of the worst kept secrets of the Jersey Shore. <laughs> I mean, everybody seemed to know that was going to happen. At least everybody who lived in uh, in Monmouth and Ocean Counties. So, and after that, he did a number of other appearances. Some in New Jersey. Did one at Jack Sugar Shack, which is no longer there in Hollywood, and then the big one of the year. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert, which I was at in Cleveland, it was it was a great day, although that show was never it didn't get pulled off as well as you would have hoped. And there wasn't as much participation between the artists, perhaps, as one would have expected. But it was a really good day. And Bruce and Street Band reunited that day. It was the, the only time they reunited in public in 1995. And. They played with Chuck Berry. They played with Jerry Lee Lewis, and they did a small set on their own. Oh, and Bruce also played with Dylan. It, it was it was a very good night and a lot of fun, and a lot of friends were there. I forget, were you at that? I was, and I cannot believe you're forgetting that that was the day you and I met for the first time. What? Yes. We met at the— uh, it was a lucky How can I forget dunk. that? I don't know. It was a big mark on in my life. I guess I, guess I just <laughs> didn't register to you then. Whatever it was at the well, at the flats in Cleveland. That, that I, I do that... recall that day because, and I'm a Northwestern grad. That was the day Northwestern beat Notre Dame, which was 
I mean, one of the more shocking upsets, I think, in sports in the 1990s, which launched over. which launched our Rose Bowl season. And I was in a daze <laughs> that day. Well, I remember that, you with some other, with some other people from New York that I had that I had previously met, but uh, I introduced myself to you and you went on your merry way. Well, I, <laughs> in fairness, I, there were hundreds of people there that I knew or were meeting for the first time. So that's true. That's true too. But I think we we you did kind of pass over the Bruce's set at in uh, at Cheers in Long Branch on August 10th. Oh right, think, that for Jerry Garcia. Right, I think yeah, I think that's that's notable just because they played uh he played with a, a dead tribute band and yeah. it was it was in honor of Jerry Garcia who had just passed away. Yeah, sad. I remember that. Yeah, but, but uh the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show. Now, this show in and of itself, now nowhere near as strange as the Hungry Heart. To, to, uh, to put no, it wasn't, mildly, but, but close. But some strange choices made by Bruce here because the two originals that he does now, Hey Bo Diddley and the She's the One Makes Sense, but he closes the set not with Born to Run, not with Hungry Heart, not with Glory Days, not with Thunder Road. He closes the set with Darkness. Now, Darkness is one of my favorite songs, but that is not what you would expect to close a set with at that kind of stadium event where every legend of rock and roll is playing on that day. You would have thought he would have blown away the house with Born to Run, and that's not what happened. No, and I think at the time, Born to Run had just been named the the best rock song of all time by, by what, New Music Express or, or another... British, yeah, British music those. magazine. I think and, it was one of those. Yeah, right. And so you would have think you would have thought he would come out and he would, as you said, he would you know burn the place down with some great hot, you know, the biggest rock song of his career. But darkness just just didn't really fit, and it just didn't feel. I mean, I was as I said, I was at that show, and it just didn't feel right. Nothing it wasn't felt big right enough. It wasn't. It wasn't big enough for the moment. As great as a song as it is, and it's one of my personal favorites, but not big enough for that moment. I mean, that was launching to born to run and bring the house down with it. And it didn't happen. It was in a way, I, I don't know how you would explain that. I, I again, I don't know how you explain the hungry heart thing. <laughs> was he searching for some artistic inspiration? I think by, by September 2nd, the date, the rock and roll hall of fame show takes place. He knows that Joe is going to be released. Yes. Well, actually, I remember uh, it, it may have already been announced. It was announced, actually. It, now that I recall, it was announced already that Jode was coming out. Was it announced or was it just rumored? Uh, it may. Have, I'm trying to remember. I, I do recall that I knew that there was a record coming out. And it was also while I was in Cleveland that I was told about the October assault that was going to be coming up, because that's the other strange thing about the end of this year. He then he tours with Grishaki. He 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 then transitions within a week from a rock tour with Groshaki basically to the uh, to the Joe tour. I want to say that I remember reading about the Joe project like just before going to Cleveland, like the day before. Yeah. Or that two seem... days before. It was right before. It wasn't official, but I think it was legitimate enough that I, to read. I guess it was on the Lucky Town Digest that, yeah, this is what the next project really is. And I don't know that we knew it was going to be as quiet and sparse a record as it was at that point, but we knew it wasn't an E Street Band record. No, I think it was pretty much, they had said it was solo acoustic. I think that was, I thought yeah. that was the the gist of the rumors at even as early as September. 
I could be wrong, but that's what I remember. (laughs) This is jumping around a bit, but going back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show, can we also, what was going on with Shake, Rattle, and Roll? Oh, God. Yeah, well, there was nothing inspired about that set, let's be honest. It was interesting. It was it was fun with with Johnny with uh, Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis, but it just it didn't have the didn't have the spark that you would ex- no. that you would think it would have. Even you would think they could get some kind of spark together just for those you know thirty minutes, but it was apparently too uh, too difficult to. And, to, and, to and I remember when I left Cleveland, and and for me it, w- it was the only performance with the E Street Band that I saw after the t- well after the Amnesty tour, I should say, and then leading up to, if you want to call the Pat King benefit an E Street Band performance, although really it's not, and then you'd have to go to the Asbury rehearsal shows in '99. So really, for a, pretty much a full decade, this was the only E Street Band performance I saw, and it really did seem a bit uninspired. I mean, it was the only public performance of the E Street Band during that entire time, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, yes, I, I know. Right. Yes, yes. I mean, as you as you pointed out, you know, Tramps was was private, even though people got in. And and same for Sony. It was supposed to be private, and it was. People got, people got in, but there were no ticket sales for those two shows, whereas this one did have some, some ticket sales. And it was just, you would think the only one would have been a little bit more inspired, but it, it pretty much fell flat. Yeah, it was just flat it, all around. It's just so weird that Bruce doesn't rise to the moment. And that was one of the cases, whatever was going on. Now, interestingly enough, there's going to be another one of those coming up very shortly, which we're going to get to when he gets to the bridge benefit, because that was also and and to to an extent, you wonder if it was it was just too much back and forth. There was he was so active and doing so much. He winds up, he does the October Assault Tour, and I think, you saw the October Assault Tour, right? I did not. Oh, you, you did. did not? You saw okay, The Pony well, and Tramps, right? I and, and the Electric Factory in Philly. I saw the first three shows. Oh, wow, okay. And that was a treat, because those were organized shows that they had rehearsed in full for. Yeah, that, that does make a difference. Now, how were the shows themselves? The show started with Groshecki on stage with the House Rockers. They would do a bunch of songs, and then Joe would introduce Bruce. Bruce came out, and I'd say he was really in the role of the lead guitarist at those shows, though, of course, he did take over for a few songs of his own, including Murder Incorporated. What I remember most is the fiery guitar playing. He was really monstrous, and it started right when he came out on What Did You Do in the War? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly listened to to those shows, and yeah, he his guitar playing was pretty much off the charts at that point, or for that tour. And maybe he just enjoyed not being in the spotlight, able to kind of relax a little bit more and not have to resp- not have the responsibility of the entire, you know, the entire show on his shoulders. It was just such a fun time. I think it was a fun time for the fans. I think Bruce was having a ball and the, he rose to the occasion. And I think he just really enjoyed being back in this club atmosphere where playing like he did really at the start of his career. Oh, I can see that. I can see that. And he was he was helping. He wanted Joe to get to a level where he wouldn't have to have a day job anymore. And so I think that might have been part of the the impetus behind his his intense playing. Yes. And he did seem really inspired. And they did a lot of press trying to get the word out that this was going on. And the shows were designed to get Krasicki a lot of attention. And I think it worked to a certain extent. I don't know if it ever worked to the level that they hoped. Probably not. Um, 
it just uh, there weren't any hit singles on there. And while there were certainly some quality stuff, I mean, I love Labor of Love and Never Be Enough Time. But Homestead is my favorite. Ah, Homestead. Yeah, we should actually we should have talked about that earlier. There's a there's a version that Bruce recorded by himself with uh, Joe Grishecki's music, but his, but his lyrics and his vocals. But we we, we what kinda, was that? Do we know what that was for? Um, I don't know if it was for anything, but it was. I assume it was recorded right around the time he was. They worked on that song in the studio with for Grushecki. Yeah. Well, and I so, don't think there's so, any way they would have put that out with the House Rockers backing Bruce. No, not well. This might this might have even been the L.A. band, the California-based band. Oh, the, right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, with with, with Zach Alford and Jerome Smith. Yeah, oh. here it is. Uh, Shane, and Shane Fontaine, Zach Alford, T.M. Stevens, and Leon Pardarvis. Pardarvis. Ah. So yeah, it did. It didn't sound like the the like, like the House Rockers backing group as you would expect them. So it was uh, it was those guys and. You know, maybe it was considered for an album somewhere in there, but again, he hasn't released any. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good song. It'd be interesting to see if that winds up on tracks too. I, I'd probably should. bet against that. You think it, it really will? should? It should. Well, I'm not saying it will. I'm saying it should. It's one of these songs. I mean, he added his own lyrics to it. So Grushecki right. played it on East Street Radio about what? Right, right about around around late 2011. No, late 2013. It was right before High Hopes. Yeah. So and he talked a little bit about it and there's so there's recording out there so you can probably track it down pretty easily. Now the October Assault tour ends and four days later Bruce finds himself transitioning to Jode mode and he's at the Bridge Benefit. Now let me just say the expectations for the Bridge Benefit. I think for myself I was there and a lot of people we know were there. Expectations were out of whack. For one thing, the first Bridge Benefit performance in 1986 was legendary. And here he winds up on uh, the bill at the bridge and he comes out and he was going to play a shorter set. And he the, the notable thing about this is he premiered for the first time Sinaloa Cowboys and the Ghost of Tom Joad. And from the first listen, it was clear the Ghost of Tom Joad in particular was a special song. But he didn't really seem to be engaged with the crowd. If I recall properly, he was wearing a hat in a way similar to what we said about this year's light of day. Although I think this year's light of day, he really did capture uh, the magic of the performance by the time it was over. But here he played, it was, uh, it was what three or four songs. It was five songs. And then he basically thanked the crowd and the crowd was calling for an encore. And he said he didn't have anything else prepared. (laughs) <laughs> well, Neil Young saved his butt by coming out, and it actually saved the entire evening uh, in a way because this was stunning. Neil Young saved his butt by coming out on stage and doing Down by the River with him. And it was, it was, that was pretty damn cool. But it was also clear that he had not fully gotten into this Jode mode yet. And when we left there that night, and it was a very tight schedule in, in a way, I mean, it was only four days after the October assault and the tour was rapidly approaching and he was going to have to get ready for it. So we were a little concerned that perhaps everything wasn't going to be pulled together. But that concern, of course, wound up unfounded in a big way. And we're going to talk about that in another show. Right. He um I mean, I guess he prepared what he what he thought he needed to do and and no more. And he was still re- really wasn't entirely prepared to do those songs. 
But uh, if you were looking at it as a rehearsal show for the upcoming tour, uh, I think you definitely had reason reason to worry. But, you know, with Bruce, he always comes through. Yeah. And there was one additional performance that year, which I was here in Los Angeles and which I attended very fortunately because it was Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday. That was the performance where Bruce did Angel Eyes, which is very sweet, a cover of, of Sinatra's song. And he also spoke very eloquently about the influence that Sinatra had had on him and the two of them, of course, growing up in Jersey. A very memorable night. And the only time, even though Sinatra really didn't perform that night, he did make his way to the stage. But the only time I ever laid eyes on Sinatra in person. To me, what's remarkable about that about, about that Sinatra show is that two days later, he basically starts the Joe tour. Yeah, the whole period, this whole period, as we've been saying throughout the entire episode, is, is is just, it's really quite crazy. I mean, if you think about it, just in the fall of 95, he played with the E Street Band, he played with Grishecki, he did all these guest appearances, then suddenly he finds himself on the State Theater in New Brunswick, opening the Joe Tour, that was officially billed as a rehearsal show, but it was a full show, and... Away we went on the Joe tour and and the Joe tour, as we're going to discuss when we discuss the album and tour, really wound up being a very special artistic experience. I think that you and I both feel that way. Yes. And looking when we look back on 95, I mean, we talk about all these different stuff that he was doing, as you said, with the E Street Band, with 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 Grushecki, Berlin. But it seemed like you can almost look at it like he was searching for what he wanted to do next. And yes. when he finally found his voice that with, uh, with the Joad recording sessions and then the Joad album and tour, he knew he found it and it, he really, he took it, he took it all the way out. And that was, that was a great time as well. Yeah. And I, and I'm looking forward to talking about the Joad tour. There's so many interesting things that occurred there, especially the way the tour sort of morphed from the original set that he did in 1995 as he got a little bit looser with like the Celadon that won't come and the Santa gets a blowjob and, and those types of songs. So we'll look forward to talking about that, but that's going to be another episode that will be. And we're going to enjoy that one as well. We, we always enjoy talking about Bruce Allen. What, yes, what can we, we say? <laughs> and uh, one last appeal. We talked about a couple of things in this episode that have not been released, most notably the relationship record and the Western Country Swing album from the Joe's daytime sessions. And fingers crossed, cross your toes as well. Hopefully we'll be able to hear those projects at some point, maybe this year. All the good vibes, please. We need to something needs to save 2020 that's all that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> yeah I, how big is it gonna be when we get the christmas 2020 and there's this massive bruce box with all this unreleased material should have come to fruition uh, should have come or the 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 inverse where we get to know we get to november of this year or december and we had a pandemic and basically life shut down for six months and then christmas comes along and there's no new bruce product under our tree Okay, that would, thanks, be, that would be even worse. Thanks, Debbie Downer. <laughs> On that note, we're going to send everyone home. We'll be back with our next episode. And as always, should we conclude with a little bit of business? Well, I guess we have to. Yeah. So here it is, the business. <laughs> None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Music or Spotify or any of the platforms of your choice. On the web, we can be found at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. And on Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Fleming Klein saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much.
We'll be seeing you. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.